Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. It's time again for an update on the latest in labor and employment law developments. To remind you, updates are all based on recent cases that have been decided, new laws that have been passed, and general news from the world of labor and employment law. Let's start today with a couple of religious discrimination cases. First, we have Medina v. Safeway from Colorado. In that case, the plaintiff was a Jehovah's Witness who worked for the store for 24 years and had been a checker since 2014. As part of her religion, she does not celebrate holidays. Now, Safeway began a campaign to solicit donations from customers in the form of turkey bucks or Santa bucks for the holiday season. The checker asked to be exempted, but her request was denied. Now, I can't blame her even apart from her religious objections. That's a pretty lame promotion. If I don't want to donate a whole Santa buck, can I break it up with some elf quarters or reindeer pennies? Anyway, the checker took unpaid leave for a period of time, but was ultimately asked to return and work the self-checkout where she would not have to solicit holiday bucks. She objected because she wouldn't be guaranteed hours, and she might have to work in other areas as well. She took another leave and later filed a lawsuit claiming discrimination and failure to accommodate. Now, the court in this case held for the employer, noting that Safeway had offered reasonable accommodations to the employee by offering her positions that did not require her to solicit donations. In another religious discrimination case, this one out of California, a fire chief sued after he was terminated from his position for a host of disciplinary issues. The case is Hiddle versus City of Stockton. One issue that contributed to the termination was the chief's use of a city vehicle and city time to attend a two-day Christian-based leadership program and favoritism for other employees' attendance at the program. Also, he was on the clock during the program. The chief had been directed to attend some leadership training, but he admitted that his attendance at the Christian conference was not required by his faith and no conflict with his religion was created by attending a strictly secular program. In essence, he conceded that this conference was merely a preference on his part. As a result, he could not make out a claim that he needed to attend a Christian conference as a religious accommodation. So what can we take from these two cases about religious accommodations? Well, a few things. First, employers only need to offer a reasonable accommodation that addresses the religious conflict. It does not have to be the employee's preferred accommodation as long as it is reasonable. Second, an employee seeking an accommodation must have an actual conflict with some aspect of the workplace that requires an accommodation. A mere preference is not sufficient to require an accommodation. Now, I think it's implicit in both of these cases that the employers gathered a good level of information from the employees about their situations and what they claim to need and why. And this is critical. There is often a hesitancy to delve into these kind of issues, but if, employer, if employers want to deal with them effectively, they really need to understand the requests and what's driving them. Finally, I'll just add that employers need to be prompt in evaluating and addressing accommodation requests, and of course, the discussions and information gathered needs to be well documented. Sticking with religious accommodations for a moment, I want to add here as well that the EEOC has updated its guidance on religious accommodation relating to employer vaccine mandates on March 1st of this year, 
by adding several questions and answers to their prior guidance on COVID-19 and vaccinations. And I'm going to cover just a few of the questions and answers here. I'll give you my quick versions of the answers, and I'll include a link in the show notes if you want to read all of the questions and the full answers. So, Here's one of the questions. Question. Do employees who have a religious objection to receiving a COVID-19 vaccination need to tell their employer? If so, is there specific language that must be used under Title VII? Answer. Yes, employees must make the employer aware of the need for an accommodation, although there are not specific words that must be used. And as a bonus here, the EEOC included a link to a copy of its own workplace form for religious accommodations. Uh, Question, does an employer have to accept an employee's assertion of a religious objection to a COVID-19 vaccination at face value? May the employer ask for additional information? Answer, the employer should generally assume that the employee has a sincerely held belief unless there's an objective basis for questioning it. Also, bear in mind that Title VII does not protect social, political, or economic views or personal preferences. Question. If an employer grants some employees a religious accommodation from a COVID-19 vaccination requirement because of a sincerely held religious belief, does it have to grant all such requests? And the answer to that one is no. The determination of whether a particular proposed accommodation is appropriate and imposes an undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business depends on its specific factual context, so it's a case-by-case basis. Question. If an employer grants a religious accommodation to an employee, can the employer later reconsider it? Answer. The obligation to provide religious accommodations absent undue hardship is a continuing obligation that allows for changing circumstances. Employees' sincerely held religious beliefs may evolve or change over time and may result in requests for additional or different accommodations. Similarly, an employer has the right to discontinue a previously granted accommodation if it is no longer utilized for religious purposes or if a provided accommodation subsequently poses an undue hardship on the employer's operation due to changed circumstances. Again, I'll link the full guidance in the show notes so you can review the rest of it if you want to. Next, let's take a quick look at another story, this one ripped from the headlines. Recently, I saw a news story that cosmetics giant Estee Lauder terminated the employment of a very high-level executive who had been with the company for over 30 years. The decision was based on an apparently offensive social media post by the executive. Apparently, the executive posted a meme on Instagram that included the N-word. He apologized for the post, claiming that he had not read it carefully before posting it. Obviously, this was not sufficient for the company, and his long career there has come to an end. Now, there are a couple of takeaways here. First, employees need to understand that they are not anonymous on social media, and their actions may have work-related consequences. This is especially true for higher-level managers. It also goes without saying these days that depending on the nature of the conduct, excuses and apologies will often have little effect. My suggestion is to avoid social media, but I know that's not popular, and some find it impossible for some reason. Beyond avoiding it, understand that you will be scrutinized, and avoid anything that anyone could find offensive. People are very sensitive these days, and employers are often willing to part ways with employees who create controversy. So, stick to the pictures of kittens and puppies. For employers... 
the social media issues continue to present problems. First, the fact that something happens on social media does not mean it's outside of work if it impacts the workplace. If employees are harassing or bullying other employees and employers become aware, they will likely have to act. And this is really nothing new. The same approach would apply for telephone harassment outside of work. It's just that social media is a newer form of communication. The bottom line is that if employees are harassing one another on social media, the employer very likely has an obligation to act. But there's a caveat here as well. Most people are aware by now that comments about terms and conditions of employment enjoy protection under the National Labor Relations Act. And this includes comments on social media. This has been the topic of a lot of litigation and discussion over the past several years with the National Labor Relations Board often declaring some pretty outrageous and even vulgar employee comments on social media to be protected. Employers who discipline or terminate employees for engaging in protected speech may be liable for violations of the law. As a result, employers must be very careful in addressing negative social media posts, even ones they find offensive. Now, obviously, there's a point at which an employee's comment may lose protection when they're vulgar, threatening, discriminatory, or maybe disclose confidential information, but that is a difficult and nuanced area. If you encounter this kind of situation and are considering punitive action against an employee for social media posts, it's a good idea to run it by counsel. The last thing I want to touch on today comes from an agency decision out of California. The California Labor Commissioner's Office recently cited the Terrania Resort for penalties amounting to over $3 million for failing to offer positions to 53 employees who had been laid off during the COVID-19 pandemic. The resort, like many others, had to shut down for a time and then it reopened. By failing to recall the affected employees, it violated California's right to recall law. What is that, you ask? The California Right to Recall law went into effect April 16th of 2021 and runs through December of 2024. The law requires that employers in certain industries make written job offers to employees who were laid off because of COVID-19. Employees have five business days to respond, and if more than one employee responds, the employer must award the jobs by seniority. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's just one of those weird California laws, and I don't have to worry about that. Well, you're partly right. California has their state law, and there are several California municipalities that have similar laws on the books requiring recall of employees who were laid off or furloughed because of COVID. But there is another state, Nevada, that has a recall law, and several big cities, including Baltimore, Minneapolis, New Haven, New York City, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., so if you're operating in one of those jurisdictions and have hired employees after COVID-related furloughs, it probably makes sense to look into the issue, preferably in consultation with legal counsel, to keep the matter privileged. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, 
we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.